So Advent is this season of preparation, of searching ourselves. Uh, This is why during the season of Advent, we listen to the Ten Commandments at the beginning of our service, um, because we want to listen to God's words, and we want to look into our own hearts for the places where our lives are not in submission to God's words. This is one way that we prepare, by repenting and turning to God. Now, the the past week uh, started off for me in a very Adventish way, a humbling way. Mondays are my day off, and so I was at home, and I was reading with Charlie, our three-year-old, and Charlie brought me the Charlie Brown Christmas story to read to him. Um, so I, I, we start reading this book, we open it up. A lot of you probably know this. On the, at the beginning of the story, there are these children that are on the ice skating rink, right? And Charlie says, Charlie Brown isn't on this page. And I said, yes, he is. He's right there. And Charlie says, no, he's not. And I said, yes, he is. He's right there. And Charlie, he's not usually this argumentative, but he said, yes, he, yes, he is. And I said, Charlie, I know about this. <laughs> And I should have known, um, but I didn't. And um, we, we go, keep going in the story. And then, you know, we've seen Charlie Brown, and, but this other child looked a lot like Charlie Brown. But at some point, a few pages in, Charlie says, um, what, what was the character's name? Um, Pigpen. He says, that's Pigpen. And that's the one I had been pointing to on the first page that was Charlie Brown. And so at, at several pages in, I realized I was completely wrong, and I had told this three-year-old that I was completely right and that he was wrong, and eventually he kind of bowed that, quieted down, and at this moment, I don't think I had ever felt this humiliated (laughs) before a three-year-old, and so I said, Charlie, I'm so sorry, (laughs) and I said, will you forgive me, and he hugged me and said, I forgive you, Daddy, you know, in this super sweet way. And then we go on with Charlie Brown's Christmas story. And I thought, what is it in me that would have been this insistent before a three-year-old? <laughs> but also, Charlie Brown Christmas story really is an amazing story. It is brilliant. Charlie Brown wants to be joyful about Christmas. He wants to be, but he simply isn't. He goes to his friend Lucy for psychiatric help. It's amazing. And even she can't point him in the wrong direction. The the commercialism of it all, all the bright, shiny colors, have left Charlie Brown feeling overwhelmed with disappointment. He feels, he says, let down in some way. When uh, he sees his dog Snoopy decorating his doghouse, Charlie Brown exclaims in one of the funniest lines, my own dog gone commercial. I can't stand it. Charlie Brown is disillusioned. And near the climax of the story, he asks this, is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And this leads to the pivotal moment when Linus tells the story of Christmas from Luke chapter 2. Now, I was looking this up this week, and I, I was fascinated to read that the debate, there was this debate during the development of the story where Charles Schultz, the, the writer, is debating with the uh, people who are going to put it on TV about whether they can actually read the Christmas story from the, the Bible. And Schultz says, no one else is going to do it. We need to do it. 
And he says, we've got to put it at this pivotal moment so that it cannot be taken out at some point and the story have any integrity. And so he places the reading of the Christmas story at this central moment where it can't be removed. There's something about the Christmas season that our culture gets absolutely right. And it's what made Charlie Brown so disappointed with himself and with Christmas at the same time. This is what one author has uh, put this way. Joy is our home. It's what we're made for. It's our home. Everyone desires joy. Everyone is made for joy. Charlie Brown wanted to be joyful at Christmas. He just didn't know how. And this is what we heard in our Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 35. If you have your Bible, please open it there to Isaiah chapter 35. This this section, verses 1 through 10, is a prophetic imagining of the day when creation and human beings are restored to our God-intended state. And it closes with this in verse 10. Listen to verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Joy is portrayed here as a kind of homecoming for us when all the things that make for our disappointment and our sadness are suddenly chased out of this world. They no longer have a place. On that day, we and all the creation will be filled with joy. I I do hope you see this, that the creation itself will experience this joy alongside human beings. Do you know how when you visit someone's home, some people's home is like this mirror image of them? You you see their decorations. The, The aesthetic, the whole aesthetic of the house is an image, a reflection of who they are. I love this about getting to visit your homes. Uh, The garden, the pictures, whatever it may be, inside and outside, it's a reflection of you. So when I get to visit your homes, I get to know you better. This is a beautiful thing. It's ingrained in who we are. Notice this. When the Bible looks toward this promised and future hope for humanity, it envisions every single thing in God's good earth being restored. Creation, the world around us, becomes a mirror image of our joy. It reflects our joy. So listen again to verses 1 through 3 in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. These three places that Isaiah mentions here, Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon, they were known as the richest and most fertile areas of agriculture in Israel. If you want to do well in agriculture, go to these places. And Isaiah is saying that one day, even the deserts are going to be like these places. 
And the only way to describe what's happening to these places is a kind of resurrection, just like what happens in humanity. Like us, creation has languished in despair, but now by the power of Yahweh, it is raised to new life. So in the words of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, creation is groaning. It is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And Isaiah is saying that when humans are redeemed, when we find our home in joy, the creation too will find its true purpose. Now here are verses 5 and 6 that speak of humanity and creation together in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What we're seeing here emphatically is that the goal of humans is joy and the goal of the creation is joy. And it's not only the goal, it's the promised future. At times like Christmas, our culture has this intuitive sense that this is true. We're made for joy. But just like in the story of Charlie Brown, what we often get wrong at Christmas is how we arrive at joy. What's the pathway to joy? In seasons like this, we try to manufacture it through new shiny material objects. We use the season like an anesthetic from reality because reality more often than not lacks luster. It's not as shiny as we would like. But scripture gives us a path to joy, to an enduring joy that we look toward and seek to enter as we draw near to Christmas. And it's not merely a spiritual, kind of outside of this world, ethereal joy. It's a joy that has broken into the world and is still breaking in, that waits until it's going to flood the world, our lives and the creation itself. So the church has traditionally celebrated 12 days of Christmas, After the season of Advent, we don't just celebrate one blowout day. We extend it for 12 days as a way of saying, we were made for this. But in order to get to those 12 days of joy in Christmas, the church calls on us to move intentionally through this season of Advent. This is the question we're going to look at this morning. An Advent question. How do we arrive at joy? What is the pathway to joy? And here's the first answer we find in our passages this morning. And it's not a shiny answer, I have to warn you. To arrive at joy, we must remain patient in evil. To arrive at joy, we must remain patient in evil. Now, before I move on, I'm sorry to stop here. I'm having trouble. Uh, The printer wasn't working at Redeemer this morning. And so, and because the technology wasn't working, we decided to go higher tech, and I'm trying to use an iPad to preach, and it's not working well. I'm sorry to distract, but I had to put that down. Okay. To arrive at joy, we must remain patient in evil. So this is the language of our New Testament reading from the letter of James. Listen to James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. James is going to encourage the Christians that he's writing to to be patient 
not to fight among one another because God is coming. Be patient as you wait for his coming. But I've been struck by the real life image for this theme in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 11. So Matthew chapter 11 is about John the Baptist. John the Baptist has sent his disciples to ask Jesus whether he is truly the Messiah. Now the passage in Matthew 11 gives two contrasting images, okay? Here are the two images. One is a prison cell and the other is a party. One is a prison cell, the other is a party. And as difficult as these images are to hold together, they are meant to be held together. So John the Baptist, he's usually thought of as the bold and fiery preacher who proclaims repentance and prepares the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. But here in this passage, John the Baptist has turned into the quiet doubter. He has baptized his cousin, Jesus, and he witnessed God's clear affirmation of Jesus at the moment of baptism. The Spirit descended on him in baptism, and God's voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved Son. John even told his disciples to leave him for the better opportunity of following Jesus, the Messiah. But now, John has been imprisoned, and he is not sure how this fits in with his original calling to prepare the way for the Messiah. This wasn't in the plans for what God told John to do. Go prepare the way. How does this fit in? Can it fit in? John wants to be sure that he got it right, that he did his job right. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is a very vulnerable moment for John. This is the image of the prison cell. Now, Jesus answers John's question, John's questions indirectly. Go tell John what you hear and see. And Jesus quotes from our Old Testament passage in Isaiah 35 and also our psalm. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, this is the image of a party. All these amazing things are happening. All these pictures of redemption in people's lives. Their lives are being restored. The answer to John's question, are you the one who is to fulfill all our hopes? The answer is a resounding yes. Jesus is saying, I am the one. You haven't made a mistake. But here is what's confounding. John is asked to watch the party from his prison cell. He's asked to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is answering the longed-for hopes from his prison cell. Yes, everything's being made well. I'm renewing all things. And yet John is constrained in a tight space, and he's going to die for what he did for Jesus, for preparing the way. Redemption is happening. Joy is breaking in. But this has to be believed even when we are confined in tight spaces. This is the very real dynamic of joy right now in the world. While we're waiting for God to flood the world with his glory, to find joy, you must be patient and endure in the midst of evil. 
all of us do in our own ways. Doing this stretches us. Endurance in the midst of the circumstances that we go through in life from day to day. Raising children. Enduring relationships and difficulties in marriage or friendships. Being a Christian in the midst of a world that doesn't believe the same things and doesn't live in the same way. These kinds of things take patience and endurance. But we're not alone in this. Jesus tread this path for us of patience and endurance and evil. And this is from Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. The author of Hebrews then tells Christians in this light, in light of what Jesus has done, enduring the cross, Therefore, you are to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You see, what the author of Hebrews does is picks up the language of all the miracles that Jesus was doing in the Gospels. He was restoring people's ability to walk. He was strengthening weak and lame knees. The author of Hebrews says, you need to do this with your faith. As you're walking through difficulty, through sufferings around you, whether it's illnesses or um, financial difficulties, whatever it may be, strengthen those weak knees. Lift your drooping hands. Have faith in the midst of this difficulty. When we look at the cross of Jesus, Christians should always see the means of our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But we should also see the cross as a symbol of patient endurance on the way to joy. Because Christ died and rose to conquer death and achieve victory over evil, we too can be patient and endure our own trials. And we can believe that our, the end of our trials is always joy. This is what God intends. This is what he promises us. Uh, at the beginning of the book of Colossians, Paul tells the Christians there that he's praying for them in this way. May you be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So here's a question as we're moving toward the season of Christmas, as we look toward this season of joy. Are you patiently enduring difficulty in your life? Are there ways in which you need to, as the author of Hebrews commands us, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees? Now the author actually commands this. If you're feeling weak, lift your weak hands. In other words, you need to do something if you're feeling weak. You need to keep moving. But it's not to say that you can do this all on your own. It's the power of the Spirit that strengthens you to be able to continue moving so that you can keep going in difficulty. So how do we arrive at joy? Well, at least one very realistic answer is we have to remain patient and evil and in difficulty. Our world has this way of trivializing joy as if it can be achieved and sustained through uh, trinkets or new experiences. But these things are never durable enough to sustain our joy at the darkest moments of our lives. And enduring joy can only be found through much endurance. 
And I'm going to point us in one other direction here. How do we arrive at joy? Well, by remaining patient in evil, but one other way, by being hopeful in prayer. Hopeful in prayer. This is what James exhorts us to do in chapter 5 of the reading that we had earlier. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. The prayer of a righteous person, James says, has great power as it is working. Elijah, he was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. James is telling us that the way that we are to remain faithful with whatever we're feeling at any moment, joy, sadness, desperate longing, the way to remain faithful in all those varied emotions is to pray. Pray. Because to cease praying about something is often an act of despair. It's as if our heart shrinks to the point of complete disbelief that God can do something. It's a death in one's soul. And the only way that something can be revived in that is if our own soul is resurrected so that we can believe again. But instead, James says, we're to be like Elijah. We're to pray fervently. James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, don't think that he was some superhuman Christian, some superhuman believer. Elijah was just like you. He was weak. He was human. But in his weakness and in his humanity, he prayed fervently. And his prayer was answered to a great effect. What is the path to joy? It's by being hopeful in our prayers. So another couple of questions here. What unfulfilled joys are you praying fervently for? A child who would own the faith for themselves, who's walked away but praying that they would believe again. Are you praying fervently for this? What unfulfilled joys have you given up on and ceased praying for? Because you wonder if God can answer that prayer. Haven't we all experienced the sweetness, the unblemished joy of praying with someone that a sickness would be healed or someone who had longed to be pregnant? Uh, You prayed with them and then you received the news that the sickness was healed or that they did become pregnant. The prayer was abundantly answered. You see, hopeful and fervent prayer is a path to pure joy. Because when God answers those prayers, we're ecstatic. But in despair, it's hard to see even when God does answer the prayer. There are two seasons of ecstatic joy in the Christian calendar, actually. Christmas and Easter. 
both of these seasons, we seek to lean into the joy for which we're made as God's children. And they're lengthy seasons. The Christmas, 12 days, much longer than the way that uh, the world celebrates Christmas. We, we give gifts for 12 days. And then Easter, we celebrate for more than one day, for weeks. But both of these seasons are preceded by a time of preparation. Advent and Lent are times for reflection on the darkness in us and in the world, for repentance of our own contributions to the darkness in the world. And these seasons, they don't put a damper on the joy. They heighten it. Patience and evil and hopefulness and prayer, these are paths to true and abiding joy. Because in the end, our joy is only fulfilled by God in Christ. And so here's the end to Isaiah 35. He is the one who redeems us and crowns us with joy and gladness, who causes all sorrow and sighing to flee away. So once again, are you enduring difficulty with patience? And are you praying with hope, believing that God can crown you with joy and gladness and that the sorrow and the sighing, all those reasons for sorrow and sighing in your life can flee away. This is what we're learning to do in Advent, to look toward that day when God does crown us with joy and gladness and there's no longer a reason for sorrow and sighing in our lives. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.